God's people than our church. I love being able to sing with you, to worship with you. I appreciate so much the effort that our musicians make and Pastor Andy makes to lead us in worship. And uh, this morning just blessed my heart. Next Sunday, I hope you'll be here because you're going to get to hear a report from the uh, orphanage in India, A Place for Grace. Uh, It's the place that we sent the offerings from VBS and Teen Week to, and Rick Presley's going to be sharing with you next Sunday about what's going on there. It's a place that really is doing an amazing work in India, and, and for that one place, there's probably so many more like them that we don't even know of, but I think it's good for us to be aware of what's happening in other parts of the world. It's good to be back with you, as I mentioned earlier this morning. It's good to be back in the pulpit. Um, I just want to publicly thank my fellow elders for the way that they cared for you and, and not just reaching out and keeping in contact with you, but by caring for you by working hard and laboring in the Word. I don't know if you've never done this before. Um, I know sometimes you get the idea that it just kind of happens. Um, Paul and Aaron, Andy will tell you it doesn't just happen. And so I appreciate their efforts. And so this morning, we are in our fourth Sunday in the Psalms, if you want to call it summer in the Psalms or whatever you want to call it. And we're going to be in Psalm 2 this morning. Psalm 2. The only reason that I didn't start in Psalm 1 with my preaching was because we've had that brought to our attention not too long ago. Um, Aaron mentioned that this morning as he read from Psalm 13 that, that um, the Psalms are God's worship manual, his songbook. I would submit to you that the Psalms are a book of prayer, they're a songbook, they're a how-to worship manual, a who-to-worship manual, a when-and-where-to-worship manual, and definitely a why-we-worship manual. And so the Psalms are so important for us. Um, honestly, how many of you, when, when, when things get rough in life, there are certain Psalms that you like to go to and just pull out and read? Any of you that way? There are certain psalms that, that when things get really rough for me, for instance, one of the ones I like to go to is Psalm 121. Um, I like to go there and be reminded that, that God sits on, sits on the mountain and that, and that I can run to salvation to Him. But in many ways this morning, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, we're not going to cover Psalm 1, but Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are kind of, if you will, the gateway into the psalms. They're, they're the introduction and these two songs, and I, I personally believe both of these are written by David, and I think under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the way the Holy Spirit even arranged for these psalms to be lined up um, in, in God's hymn book, if you will, are there to kind of give us a gateway into the psalms. And in Psalm 1, we have it introduced to us. It's to the individual. Blessed is the man, verse 1 of Psalm 1. And, and he, con- he contrasts the, the, way, the way of blessing to delight in God's law versus the way of the wicked, which is not to delight in God's law. And, and so Psalm 1 tells us the way of blessing for the individual. And, and he continues on with that theme in Psalm chapter 2. If you look at the very last verse of Psalm chapter 2, you will see the same word that you find at the beginning of Psalm 1 and verse 1, blessed. Blessed. And so he's continuing on with this theme where he says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We're going to find out who this him is. If Psalm 1 was addressed to individuals, Psalm 2 is addressed to 
a larger group. It's addressed to mankind in general. It's addressed to the nations. Question for you this morning. How many of you, when you look around the world, you just can't help but shake your head and wonder what's happening? I mean, you don't even have to look around the world. I mean, but, but let's be honest, the world is a mess. How would you like to live in Haiti this morning? Anybody want to sign up for that? You, don't, you have no idea who's going to be your next president. When they do get in office, they find a way to just kill them and bring in another one, right? We don't even have to get to Haiti. How many of you look around our own country and you just look around and you like shake your head and you wonder, what is happening here? Yeah. Psalm 2 addresses that. Psalm 2 gives us some insight as to how we look at these kinds of things and how we approach this. But it also gives us a way to blessing. It's the way of blessing in a dark world. Would you agree with me this morning that we live in a dark world? Would you agree with me this morning that not only is it a dark world, but it's a world that's getting darker as the days get longer? Yeah. And what we're going to find is this morning, and I'm just going to tell you the premise of where I'm going with this psalm, is this, that the way of blessing is to take refuge in Christ, the Messiah, who is God's anointed one. That's what this psalm is all about. The way of blessing is to take refuge in Christ. Now, you won't find Christ mentioned by name here, but you will definitely find him here in this psalm. And as we begin this morning, I want you to think with me this morning, and I want you to search your own heart. Because I think we need to make this personal this morning. And, and I want you to ask yourself, what do you take or what do you see as your refuge? Where is your safety? Safe places are like big, aren't they now? I mean, safe places are big. Like, you know, you go to college campuses and they have safe places. And you go to schools and they have safe places. But what do you consider to be your place of safety and refuge? I, I unwittingly, on our vacation, the first week we were gone, we were down in South Carolina at the beach. And so the night before we were to come home, I'm thinking about, hey, you know, I'm doing the dad thing. Dads, can you relate to this? The night before you come home, what are you doing? We got to get everything organized, get everything packed up. We got to start getting the van part, you know, packed up and all this stuff. And, and as I'm doing this, I'm thinking, okay, we got all this stuff arranged here in the house that we're staying in, and so I, I go and I look for the key to the van. Okay, it's a newer van, and it's got a fob. Well, when we bought it, we bought it used, and they promised us that they would get us a second fob. We're still waiting for the second fob. So, so stupid Dan goes on vacation with one fob for his van, and the night before they're going to come home, what happened, honey? The fob was gone, okay? And all of a sudden, my world is rocked. I am like, you know, by, by day six of vacation, I'm just kind of like, oh. And all of a sudden, that was gone, because I'm like, oh. I'm calling Toyota dealerships, and they're telling me, oh, it's going to take a couple days to get it in, a couple days. You're going to have to get it down here to program. I don't have a key to get it started to get it to you. You're still going to have to get it to us. And that's like, it's like that's, they basically said to me, that's an issue, not an issue me. That's what they're saying. So I'm like panicked. The whole, we were getting ready to eat dinner whenever I realized there's no key. All of a sudden, dinner's totally interrupted. The whole, the whole family is, we're looking all over, and they find the key in our bedroom under my stuff. 
typical. Shut up, Tony. <laughs> I say all that to say this. All of a sudden, my security got rocked because I had this plan, right? I'm going to get up on Saturday morning. The van's going to be loaded. I'm going to get in the van, and I'm going to go home, and everything's going to be perfectly fine, right? Because that's what we do. We make plans and we order our life. And, and, and we take our refuge in things like job security. We take our refuge in savings accounts. We take our refuge you know, in, in the fact that I have a retirement package. We take our refuge in the fact that I have relatively good health. We take our refuge in the fact that I've got a good family around me who are going to support me. We might even take in the, in the fact that we take refuge in this fact that I'm an American. I live in the greatest nation on the face of the earth until all of a sudden, the last election, and Christians seemed to lose their mind when the right guy didn't get elected. Did your refuge get rocked? Did what you saw as security get rocked? If it did, something's wrong, is it not? Something's wrong. The story's told of a small village in a remote island that was experiencing an earthquake and a coming tsunami. And, and in this small village of, of these, these natives who lived here, they're all running around alarmed because the ground is shaking. Literally, their huts are falling down. And the, the old woman who's the matriarch of the village is just calmly sitting on the front porch of what was her hut. And, and everybody is scurrying around and she's just sitting there and they, say, they come to her and they say, Mother, aren't you afraid? And she said, I rejoice to know a God who can shake not only this island, but the whole world. Is your refuge in the God who can shake this whole world? My prayer this week has been, and my prayer this morning will be, that in Psalm 2, that we will find that there's only one place to go for refuge where we're truly going to find it. And so this morning, join me as we read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's not a really pretty picture, is it? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so, Father, this morning, as we consider in our brief moments the words of Psalm 2, I pray that we would all leave here convinced that there is only one true refuge and his name is King Jesus. I pray that those in this place who have not kissed the Son, who have not committed in their heart to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling would do so today. 
I pray, Lord, that for those who have committed to that, that they would be reminded, even in a very dark world that seems to be growing darker, that there is only one true refuge, and he is Jesus. Speak to our hearts now, Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this, this psalm is really easy kind of unpack. It's, it's a series of three verse points here. So there's four points in this psalm, and the first one is found in the first three verses here, and it's basically this. You and I need refuge because this world is a dark place. You and I need refuge because this world is a dark place. Look with me at it. Notice what the, what the description of the world is. Now, if you weren't in ABF this morning, and I would encourage you to come to ABF because it's a great place to learn God's word, you missed a great explanation from Pastor Andy today as to how we would look at a passage like this and how we would understand this and how we would interpret this passage. We have to understand, first of all, who this is originally written to. And this psalm is originally written to the people of God, Israel. This is a psalm for them to sing. It's a psalm for them to, to use and to rehearse over and over to teach them some truth. And so we have to understand that this is talking about a certain place in time, and it's written during the time of David's reign. And so this is King David writing this himself, and, it, and he's, he's living in a time when, when he can see all around him the nations are stirring up trouble, Okay? Don't make the mistake of saying, well, this is America in, in, in chapter 2. No, this is Israel, pre-Christ, under King David, and he's looking around. But it's also very true for the world that we live in today, though. And there's application for the world that we live in today. And let's understand what's going on in David's time. The nations are raging. Literally, that word is used in the Hebrew language to describe the action of waves. The action of waves. You ever been to the beach and seen what waves do? Do waves ever really stop at the ocean? No, they don't ever really stop. They just keep coming, don't they? Sometimes they're stronger than others, but waves keep coming. And, and, and that's the kind of idea here is the nations are just raging over and over and over. The nations are constantly, senselessly railing and complaining against God. Now, that's easy for us to think about when we think about nations like this. I mentioned some nations here, and you'll be like, yes, these are nations who rail against God. China, you think they rail against God? How about Saudi Arabia? Think they rail against God there? How about, I don't know, I don't know, Haiti, you think they rail against God there? How about the United States? Yes, we are in the nations here. Okay, we're in the nations here. It's, it's all the peoples of the earth. Notice not only are they raging, but they're plotting in vain. The idea they're plotting is they're always scheming and conspiring to perpetuate evil. I find it to be true in my own life that sometimes I get surprised at the level of evil. Do you ever get surprised by the level of evil that you witness? We shouldn't be. Because here the psalmist is telling us the peoples are constantly plotting. They're plotting more evil. But notice he serves notice right here in verse 1. Is it going to be a fruitful endeavor to plot for evil? No, it's in vain. It's an empty pursuit. And basically, the psalmist is saying here, I don't even know why they bother doing it. Now, that's a, that's a pretty cavalier attitude to have, it seems like, whenever we're in the face of impending evil. 
I mean, when was the last time that, that you drove down the street and, and you, saw, you saw somebody, you know, maybe in Newark or Columbus who is obviously there homeless on the street, probably because they've got a drug habit or, or they, they've got serious issues of their own, and then you've driven by an abortion clinic, and then you drive by, you, you know, a bar where there's people coming out and they're just totally stumbling, and you think to yourself, that's all emptiness. And, and, and this is what he's describing here. This pursuit of evil, this proliferation, the growth, the threat of wickedness, it's all in vain. It's an empty threat. And, and yet there are times when we see all that and, and we turn on the news and it's another murder, it's another shooting, it's another killing, and we think, will it ever end? And I want to tell you this morning from God's perspective, it's all in vain. It's all in vain. Notice what the rulers do. They have, they have a common enemy, and they're plotting against a common foe here in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, literally, the kings are arranging themselves. And, and, and at times, we can be really not smart and put our head in the sand, but let's understand this this morning. There is a wicked plot in the world that we live in today, and all of the leaders of all of the nations are a part of it because there is a plot to throw off the rule of God Almighty. They may not be meeting together and figuring out how to do it, but they do have a common thread. Maybe they are meeting, who knows? But there is a common thread in what's happening in every nation in the world, and that is to throw off the rule of Almighty God. See what it says there? The rulers take counsel together. They've set themselves against who? Against the Lord and his anointed, capital A. There's two individuals that they're taking direct aim at here. It's God Almighty who sits on the throne and the one that he has appointed to sit on his throne, King Jesus. As an aside here, as an aside here, if the nations and the leaders of the world are, are plotting against God and his son Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, are you going to be in the crosshairs? Church, are you? You are. We are. And let's understand something here. Yeah, we have guarantees of religious liberties in our country and all these things that are in a constitution that are set up this way. But let's understand something here. The kings of the earth, the Bible tells us, they are taking counsel together to go directly in opposition to Almighty God. And if you stand on the side of righteousness, you are going to stand on the side of, that's going to take some heat. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. And so, they're lining up. It's, it's not just bad countries. <laughs> it's all the nations here. It's all the kings. It's all the rulers who are doing this. And they're all seeking to overthrow the righteous rule of God and His anointed one. That anointed there means God's chosen one. At the time of this writing, who was God's chosen one that, that specifically who this applied to? It was King David. It was King David. King David was in the crosshairs from, from all the world around him. They wanted him to be removed. But, but this anointed isn't just King David, but, but David is an important figure here because it's from the line of David that the ultimate appointed one is going to come, is it not? It's King Jesus. It's King Jesus. 
And in a far greater sense, Christ here, the Messiah, the one sent by God to reveal God himself, who is rejected and crucified, the one who will return as he's promised and will establish his kingdom physically here on the earth, he is the one who is the one that, that, that the world is fighting against. And what is the goal of their rebellion? We see it here in verse 3. What's the goal of this rebellion? Sometimes you you watch the the news and you wonder what's going on. What's the end game here? Well, I think the Bible gives us the end game here. The end game is verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. David uses some really interesting language here. Bursting bonds and casting away cords. These are terms that would have been used with the idea of a yoke. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with what a yoke does, but, but a yoke but puts two animals together and it harnesses the energy and even more animals sometimes. And you can put a yoke on just one animal, but it harnesses the energy of that animal and it brings that animal or animals into submission, does it not? Isn't that what a yoke does? And what they're saying here is, is we will not be held in submission to you, almighty God. Do you not see that in the world that we live in today? God, you tell us what a family is. We will not be held in submission to what a family is. You tell us what, what a marriage is. We will not be in submission to what you tell us a marriage is. You tell us what, how to define gender. We will not be in submission to that. Do you not see that in the world that we live in today? This, this is all an attempt to, to throw off the, the cords and to burst the bonds. And all of unregenerate mankind seeks to replace God as their Lord with themselves. They seek to remove Jesus as the King of kings and place themselves as king of their own life. They're seeking to break the bonds and the cords that link them to the yoke of God's authority. And this is as old as time itself. It began in the garden when Satan came to Eve and say, did God say? It's not a very pretty picture in verses 1 through 3, is it? Is it an accurate picture? Church, is it an accurate picture for the world we live in today? It is. It is. Isn't it amazing how this psalm that's written hundreds of years before Christ is applying to where we live today? God's Word's amazing, isn't it? And how it applies to where we live. But, but secondly, I want you to see in verses 4 through 6, how, how does God look at this vain pursuit? How does God, how does Almighty God, the one that we sang about this morning, the Ancient of Days, who sits on his throne, who always will sit on his throne, how does he see this? Verse 4, I love this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Do you get the picture here? Here is Almighty God sitting on his throne Get the the Isaiah 6 picture of God, the Revelation 4 picture of God as he sits on his throne. You get the idea that God, if you will, has to split apart all of space and time, and he splits apart all of the heavens, and as he sits on his throne, he stoops to look down, and he sees what's happening on earth, and he gets a big chuckle out of it. When was the last time you watched the news and you chuckled at the news? God looks at this and he chuckles. He laughs. Is this this a mocking laugh? No, God is amused. And here's what amuses God. When, when, When puny little man that God has made says, I can replace you as Lord of my life, that amuses God. 
that amuses him. The one who sits in heaven, the, the one, and, and why does he do this? Well, just flip ahead in the Psalms to Psalm 37. I want you to see this. Why, why is God laughing? What, what, what brings laughter to God in this? Because to you and I, we see it and we, see, we get sad. It like brings us to tears sometimes. It brings us to frustration. It brings us to anger. It brings laughter to God. Psalm 37, verse 13. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. This morning we were challenged on why it's important to understand eschatology or the study of end times. You want to know one of the reasons why it's important to know it? Because we need to know what's coming, just like God knows what's coming, and maybe we'll have a better attitude about the world that we live in. If God can laugh at this, then I don't have to be so worked up over this. So, so God, God, God looks at this and he laughs. And it's a different picture than what you and I might be tempted to think God is doing. God is not sitting in heaven, wringing his hands and saying, I wonder how much worse it can get. No, he is looking down at earth and he is saying, this is kind of amusing. Why? Why is it amusing to God? Because in verses 5 and 6 we get the answer. First he laughs. And then he speaks to them in his wrath and, and will terrify them in his fury, saying, how many of you have ever witnessed this terrible phenomenon that we see in Western parenting where parents laugh at bad behavior? How many of you have ever seen that? How many of you want to be like, let me just have that kid for a second? <laughs> this is not what God is doing. God is not laughing at Earth's bad behavior and like, isn't that cute? No. No. God isn't the parent who, who, doesn't, who laughs at bad behavior and doesn't correct it. Notice very quickly in verse 5. He will speak to them in his wrath. He will terrify them in his fury. Understand this this morning. If you get nothing else this morning, get this. God will not tolerate evil. Did you get that? Say it with me. God will not tolerate evil evil. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? He, he's not going to tolerate it. Not only does it make him laugh, but it, it makes him furious. Do you see it there in verse 5? Wrath and fury. In other words, he's not going to stay amused forever. This is going to bring out the full wrath and fury of God. And here's God's response to the evil in the world. If this was written by you and I, if we're sitting on the throne of heaven, as laughable as that seems, we'd be like lightning bolts out of heaven now. Here we go. Right? No, here's God's solution. As for me, you see it there in verse 6? As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What, what's God's solution to this? <laughs> You're not going to submit to my authority. I'm going to place my authority right here on earth. I, I, you, you don't like my authority? Guess what? I'm going to bring my authority even closer to you. I'm going to put it right here on Mount Zion. Now, during David's time, was this true? David, if you will, was, was the vice regent under God who's sitting here on the throne on earth of God's people, right? 
And you say, well, PD, that experiment didn't work out very well. Yeah, if you look at the books of, of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, did the, did the monarchy in Israel work out really well? No. And we might be tempted to think it's a failed experiment, right? When I look at this verse, though, I see little K, King David on Zion, but I see big K, Jesus, one day sitting on the throne, literally in Zion. Do you think it'll be a failed experiment then when King Jesus sits on the throne? No. No. And so, nations, peoples, make your plans. And notice nations and peoples are all plural, but here's God's singular, I. <laughs> you, you, all you guys get together, get your coalition formed, make your plans, do your worst. I've already got a plan here. I'm putting my king on the throne on Zion. And understand this, when you look at verse 6, understand this, there is nothing that you and I can do individually, there is nothing that even all the nations, when they get together and they find a common purpose, there is nothing they can do that will thwart Almighty God's plans. He has a plan and it will be accomplished. Because he's the Ancient of Days. I've set my king, it's as good as done. Which is another little side application for us this morning. If the nations aren't going to thwart God's plan, who who are you and I to think we can thwart God's plan in our lives? Just be honest with me, that's laughable, isn't it? So let's see what the rule of King Jesus looks like in verses 7 through 9. This is God's solution to what's going on on the earth. The solution is found in verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9 here. This is the solution. I will tell of the decree. This is God's holy decree that will not be changed, okay? This is God speaking. When God issues a decree, it it, it is literally, it is as good as done, okay? So I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, okay? Now, if you're reading that, you're saying to yourself, I've heard that somewhere before, right? You are my son, today I've begotten you. Well, that's because if you read your New Testament at all, you'll see it several times in your New Testament. Don't make the mistake here of thinking like a Westerner. You have to kind of think like an Israelite here. In verse 7, when he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that is not a statement where God is saying, okay, now this is the creation of Jesus, my son, Question for you, church. This is where theology is really important. Was Christ created? Was Christ created? No. No, because he is almighty God, right? He's just as much God as God the Father, right? And God the Holy Spirit, right? Was he created? No. Is this what he's saying here in verse 7? I'm going to make my son. I'm going to bring a son into this world. No. This is not a statement of, of, of beginning. It's a statement of legal right here. And what God is saying, I am giving my son the authority to to now sit on my throne. Evokes in my mind the writing of Paul in Philippians where where it it says to him, I will give him a name that's above every name, right? That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, right? Here, Jesus as God's son has the legal right to act as his representative and to sit on the throne, 
So God, God now has given the nations and the authority over them to his son, King Jesus. Do you see it there? Verse 8, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. Let's face it. We're a nation that was born in rebellion, right? We got a rebel streak in us, right, as Americans? Right? It's part of what makes us what we are, right? That's why the other nations in the world kind of hate us, right? Because we're a bunch of rebels. But here's the thing. Our rebellion against England and our rebellion against other authority, God just is going to flick that away. Want to know why? Because... We need to be under submission to King Jesus, to King Jesus. We're, we're part of those nations that are his heritage. The ends of the earth are his possession. We don't own ourselves. We're not self-made Americans. We are nothing apart from the grace of God. Amen. Nothing apart from the grace of God. And, and ultimately, we are in submission to him. And what is King Jesus going to do with the nations? Well, he's going to get all Psalm 23 with them, right? You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's going to, be, he's going to treat us very peacefully, and he's going to love us. No, what's he going to do in verse 9? You're going to break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I thought about bringing a clay pot up here and a hammer and smashing it this morning for effect, but then I realized I'd have to clean it up, so I didn't do it. But have you ever taken a clay pot and just see how fragile they are? So he's talking about here. And, and that rod that he's talking about, that, that's an interesting word in the Hebrew language. The word rod there can be, can be interpreted as a shepherd's staff. It can be a king's scepter. And, and they both fit with King Jesus, do they not? And here's what Jesus is going to do. If the nations will not submit to them, he will subjugate all rebellions under his authority. Think about it. Think about the nations that you know about in the world today that are not living and acting under the authority of King Jesus. God, one day, through Jesus Christ, will subjugate them all to his authority. And if he has to, he'll break them. He'll crush them. And that includes our country, too. That includes our country, too. And so... The mighty kings and rulers of this earth will one day break like fragile clay pots. And this is the tale of all, of all who would resist the loving authority of King Jesus. It's not just kings and nations, it's, it's those people in those nations as well. And so he ends with a warning here. He ends with a gracious warning and, and, and I've entitled this last section of verses 10 through 12, how you respond to, to Jesus as king, okay? Make no mistake, verses 7 through 9 make it very clear. Whether or not you and I accept it, and, and we have a way of not accepting things. Just for instance, as Americans, how many of you have accepted the latest election outcome? We have a way of not accepting things, right? And whether or not we choose to accept Jesus as king, he is king, He's on the throne. God's given him the authority. And so now, what do we do in response to that? Verses 10 through 12. How do you respond to the authority of King Jesus? David writes, Now therefore, in light of what I've just told you in the first nine verses here, because of this, O kings, 
be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. I don't know if you understand how gracious verse 10 is. I don't know that I understand how gracious verse 10 is. Does God really owe us a warning? <laughs> does God really owe us a warning? I, I don't think he does. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. It's, it's we who have chosen not to accept it, right? And, and here God in his grace is giving us a warning. Oh, kings, be wise. Oh, rulers of the earth, be warned. Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Mike DeWine, be warned. Angela Merkel in Germany, be warned. The premier, you know, in China, be warned. Kim Jong whatever in North Korea, be warned. Right? Be warned. Be wise. Well, what would wisdom say that we do? Remember these key words from Proverbs 1? What is the beginning of wisdom according to Proverbs 1-7? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you see that now in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The only acceptable response to the truth that Jesus is king is to submit to his authority. Let me say that again. The only acceptable response to the truth that Jesus is king is to submit to his authority. But what are we prone to do? I told you we're Americans, right? What do we do with authority? We, we fight it. We resist it, right? It's not just that we're Americans, we're, we're humans. And submission here in verse 11 is seen as a willingness to serve him. And, and I want to say to you, what grace that this king of kings would even give us an opportunity to serve him. Do you, do you, want, do you fathom that? That the king of kings would give us an opportunity to serve him. He doesn't subjugate us and enslave us, he gives us an opportunity to serve him. What an amazing thing. You say, why should I fear him? Well, Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, don't fear those who can kill the body. <laughs> fear the one who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. <laughs> That's a fearful thing, isn't it? That's a fearful thing. Not just that somebody who can kill me, but somebody who could destroy my body and my soul in hell for eternity. That's a fearful thing. And so now David, in the Holy Spirit writing through David, says, hey, Jesus is king, and here's what you do. You serve the Lord with fear. You rejoice with trembling. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say this, you kiss the son. It's a sign of ultimate allegiance here. You kiss the son. Why? Because if you don't, you're going to incur that wrath and fury that he talks about in verse 5. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Be honest with me. Be honest with me. Look up here. How many of you get frustrated that God doesn't do anything about the evil in the world? Be honest with me. You ever get frustrated by that? 
take heart. His wrath is quickly kindled. God doesn't have to do it like you and I do. He doesn't have to build up to this. It, it can happen just like that. And it will. And it will. What's interesting here is, is that he uses a different word for son in verse 12 than he uses earlier. In verse 7, he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. In verse 12, he uses a different word. He uses a totally different word to talk about son here. I am not a Hebrew expert, but, but I, was, I was kind of alerted to this. Pastor Andy and I were talking about this passage. I was studying some commentaries, and they alerted me to this. And it is, it's a really beautiful thing here. The same word that he uses here in kiss the sun in verse 12 is the same Hebrew word that Daniel uses in Daniel chapter 7. And I just want to read these words to you. Because Daniel is talking in Daniel chapter 7 about future events, like we're talking about in ABF. And, and this is what he says. This is what Daniel sees in his vision in Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Do you understand what's happening here? Daniel sees this vision. There's one who's like the son of man. Who is that, church? Who's the son of man? We've seen it in Luke over and over. It's Christ, right? And he comes and appears before the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? We just sang about it. My God, it's the Ancient of Days, right? And so here, the Son appears before the Father, and verse 14 says this, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Does that include the English language? Does that include the American people? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Understand this. Every kingdom that's ever been on this earth, every nation that's ever appeared on this earth is going to all melt away. It's all going to become meaningless because it's all under Christ's authority. There's a greater nation, and it's Christ's nation. And this is the son that David tells us that we're to kiss. This one who's going to rule over all. And he gives one final piece of advice. Blessed, satisfied, happy, complete are those who do what? Take refuge in him. You want to know the way to blessing? It's not to complain about what's happening in the world. It's to take refuge in the one who has all this world's problems solved. Ultimate refuge is salvation, and, and salvation is demonstrated by the way that you serve him. He, not only is he our ultimate salvation, but he's our daily refuge. Be honest with me. From day to day, do you get really ground down by this world? Yeah. Where's your refuge? Do you find, do you find your refuge just hiding away from it all on your back patio, sipping an iced tea? That only lasts until the mosquitoes come and then there's no refuge, right? There's only one true refuge and it's Christ himself. Can I say this to us with all love? Our country's need is not to get conservative politicians. That's not our greatest need. You know what our country's greatest need is? is that the people of our country would know and love and follow Jesus. 
And, and that, that's a call to us. Who's going to point the people of this country to the refuge? The ones who are seeking refuge there. Think about it this way. Think about this. Think about it this way. You have found the perfect vacation spot. How many of you think you have the perfect vacation spot? You go back to it all the time. If you really love somebody and, and, and you know that they need a really good vacation, would you not recommend that? How many of you have done that, have recommended your vacation spot? Yeah, I have yet to find that spot, okay? It's my bed and no alarm. That's my refuge. <laughs> but you found that spot, right? You want to tell people, hey, this is the place to go. Just don't go when we're there, right? That's your refuge, right? Folks, the ultimate refuge is Christ himself. We're too busy putting up lawn signs and complaining about this and that, that the world doesn't see that the ultimate refuge is Jesus. And that's, that's a rebuke to us. We, too, need to heed the words of verses 10 through 12. Kings, be wise. People of God, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, and, and those who claim Christ as your Savior, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and take refuge in him. May it be so in our lives. Father, Father, what a, what a tremendous hope that this psalm ends with, that there is a refuge for our souls. And it's not a temporary refuge. It's not a refuge that we have to worry about the world collapsing in on us. This, this is a solid refuge that will never, ever be destroyed, and it's Jesus Christ. I pray today that, that, that these dear ones here would be recommitted to finding their refuge in Christ. That those here today who don't know Christ as Savior would to today find that He is a gracious Lord and Savior and take refuge in Him. We thank you that there is a refuge for us. This world is a dark place. Evil is growing and it's abounding all around us. We feel like it's at times pressing in on us. Thank God for a refuge. And we praise you, God, the ancient of days, who holds time in your hand. And we, and we trust our lives to you. May we be busy this week pointing lives to the refuge that is Jesus Christ, I pray in his name, amen.